methodical execution of an American journalist by this terrorist group called ISIS. Jim Foley was dedicated, passionate, fearless, and only 40 years old, mourned today by friends in far corners of the world. Do you remember what it was like the very first time you flipped the news on and uh, you saw the devastation that the tsunami had affected on so many when that huge tsunami killed hundreds of thousands of people? Or when you turned the news on and the wildfires had ravaged entire communities or the great earthquake in Haiti that uh, is in recent history and when you saw the devastation of that and how terrible and, and how much suffering was occurring because of that. Do you, do you remember what it felt like uh, when those moments occurred the first time and, and you were moved to compassion and, and move to this reality of what was going on and, and just trying to figure out and grapple with, you know, what, what could you do? What are people going to do? Who's, who's going to help? Because we are moved as human beings uh, whenever suffering and bondage and slavery and, and death occurs. We are moved by that. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or irreligious. We are moved by these realities. Do you remember the first time uh, you turned the television on that morning when you got the text saying, turn the TV on and you saw airplanes flying into buildings in New York City and the shock and awe that was there or the first time you heard about uh, innocent uh, people being killed by extremist groups like the most recent in the ISIS realities with people being beheaded and burned and killed by these people. You remember what was in you then? Uh, you, we, see, when you add injustice to the reality of struggle and slavery and, and difficulty and suffering, then it goes beyond simply being moved to uh, a feeling of compassion, but it, being, it, it moves to being provoked. And the word provoked is a different word because the word provoked means that you are moved to anger or frustration or irritation uh, or, or, or um, uh, absolute, uh, uh, absolutely vexed. And that's what the dictionary word means, is that you're vexed, you're, you're angry. And you're angry because somebody is suffering at the hands of somebody else's uh, actions and that's not just. And so we are moved and provoked by these things. And the truth is we ought to be. We ought to be provoked by these things. We ought to be provoked when injustice takes place that creates slavery and suffering and death in people's lives. And as Christ followers, we ought to be provoked more than even the standard human provocation that takes place when these things happen. As we are traveling through the incredible story of the early New Testament church in the book of Acts, we are walking with Paul and his team right now, and what we are watching unfold is the story of the church as it plays out on mission on planet Earth, and it's giving us a space in which we can go, this is what my life is supposed to look like. If I follow Jesus, this is what life begins to look like. This is the calling that's on my life. This is where I'm supposed to live. It calls us out of the ordinary stories in which we often pursue to try to build lives for ourselves and calls us into God's grand story where we can release our lives for the sake of God's story and be part of a far, far, far bigger adventure. And this is what we're discovering in the book of Acts. As we follow Paul into these most recent stories and now the one we're about to enter into, what we are going to discover is that God invites us as Christ followers to be moved and to be provoked by far deeper things on our planet than simply the visible realities of injustice. Yes, we ought to be provoked by those, but there's more to the story than you might imagine and it's often things we miss. So we're gonna travel with Paul and see what he discovers and 
and what we therefore discover through his story as Luke writes to us in the book of Luke, uh, in the book of Acts. So just before we jump into the scriptures, remember where we're at, right? We've been following Paul and Silas from Antioch into Galatia. In Galatia, they picked up Timothy. They traveled from Galatia 400 miles going west, not going south or north because the spirit of God prevented them and heading straight to Troas on the Aegean Sea. They traveled over the Aegean Sea into Macedonia. The reason this was significant is because Macedonia is Roman territory in the truest sense of the word. Remember, we've been in uh, uh, Israel and in the, in the surrounding areas like Galatia and, and, and Bithynia and all of that, and those parts are occupied by Rome. They have a significant Roman presence, but they are still primarily Jewish and then Gentile influenced by the Jewish reality. In Macedonia, you are now the opposite. You are in Roman territory where everything is Rome, where the Greek culture collides with the Roman reality and where there is a minority of Jewish presence. So Paul and his team are walking into a whole new world. Paul's picked up Timothy uh, in Galatia, so him and Silas and Timothy get to Troas. They pick up Luke there, who is the author of the book of Acts. Luke goes with them to Philippi in Macedonia, and that's where we experience our first reality of what it means to do gospel ministry in a Roman territory, right? Philippi, thing, miracles happen and some difficult things. They move on uh, to uh, Thessalonica. Luke stays back in Philippi. The other three guys move down to Thessalonica. They preach the gospel there to the Jews in the, in the synagogue and the, uh, and the Gentiles in the synagogue. The Jews get jealous. Things go badly in Thessalonica. They go from Thessalonica to Berlin. Berea. They're in Berea really to try to get away from Thessalonica and there they preach the gospel to the Jews and because these Jewish people and the devout Gentiles were seekers of truth and not trying to hold on to what they believed was theirs, they responded incredibly to the gospel and we see the beauty and freedom that comes when you respond to the gospel and you accept the truth of the gospel. The Thessalonican Jews come to Berea, stir things up there and once again Paul has to be whisked away by a team of people. Paul Paul's whisked away a lot because he creates lots of trouble because he loves preaching the gospel, right? So we should, we should take heed to that and say our lives may be a little uncomfortable if we're going to be carriers of the gospel, right? So Paul's whisked away. Timothy and Silas stay in Berea because they were not stirring up the, the sort of the frontline trouble to disciple the church. Paul is whisked to a city called Athens. Now let me tell you a little bit about Athens because that's going to be important as we enter into the story. Athens was world-renowned at this point in history for a couple of things. It was world-renowned for its architecture, world-renowned for its art that was being produced in Athens, and world-renowned for its thinking, for its philosophizing. It was the hub of of the Greek philosophies colliding with the Roman realities and it created a city where the greatest pride of the city was its beauty that it was producing with passion and its architecture and art for the gods and for the people and its ability to think as a city freely and bigger than anybody else. The greatest thing in Antioch, I mean in, in Athens that was going on was that if you wanted to be someone in Athens, you had to be a thinker. You had to think well, you had to think smart, and you had to be philosophical, and then you were in. And so when you walked around the streets of Athens, if you were visiting the city, you would see the architecture and the art and you would stand among the great philosophers of that time and listen to their um, bantering back and forth in great deep thoughts. Right? That was Athens. It was a cool city to be part of. So Paul is whisked to Athens, and this is where he lands. And let's take a look at what Paul does in Athens when he gets here. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 17. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, we're on page 602. 602 of the Bibles we provide. If you brought a smart device or uh, your own Bible, turn to Acts, chapter 17. And we're going to be in verse 16. Acts, chapter 17, verse 16. That's where we're going to jump in. So this story starts with an interesting sentence, a little different from previous stories in Macedonia. It simply says this, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. So let's just stop there for a second. This gives us a context of what Paul is up to and, and really you're gonna see as we follow the story that this will be confirmed in the way that he responds in a moment to some things happening. Paul is waiting for them, it says. Who is he waiting for? He's waiting for Timothy and Silas to get to Athens. He sent word, word back with 
with those who brought him to, uh, to Athens. Uh, he sent word back to Berea saying, tell Timothy and Silas to come to Athens. I need them here. Paul wants to do ministry in Athens. There's a synagogue in Athens. He wants to start his normal strategy where he goes in the synagogue, preaches the gospel to the Jews and devout Greeks, and then sees it spill out into the streets. So Paul is waiting for them in Athens. And this describes the attitude of Paul. He is not in Athens to jump into ministry right away. He is exploring the city, getting to know the city until Silas and Timothy arrive when they can then launch into the synagogue because he needs that support to be able to do the ministry at the level he needs to do in this space. So look what it says. It says, um, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. So now something is happening to Paul, right? He's in Athens, he's walking the city, he's hanging out waiting for Timothy and Silas to show up and it says Paul's spirit, not the spirit of God, although the spirit of God is also provoked by the things we're gonna read about, but it says Paul, his spirit was provoked by something in the city. He was vexed, he was infuriated, he was angry, he was frustrated and irritated. These are the words that come from the word provoked. One of the translations, the NIV, I think, says he was greatly disturbed. That doesn't even, even get close to what he was, right? I mean, provoked is mad. He's mad. He's ticked off. And he's walking around the city waiting for the boys. Why is he ticked off? Let's take a look. It says, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols, as he saw that the city was full of idols. This is what provoked him, that he was in a city walking around with the beautiful architecture surrounding him, and he was just kind of going, man, there's, everywhere you turn, there's an idol, because these pieces of architecture and art were created for the gods, for the different gods they served, and then they became spaces for the people to enjoy the worshiping of these gods. They were in awe of the gods they served by these idols. And Paul was just getting more ticked off as he was walking around, right? Can you imagine him walking the city every day and, and, and slowly the, the reality of the beauty of the architecture, architecture diminishes and diminishes and eventually all he can see is the ugliness of the idols, right? And he's just like, I can't take it anymore. So we see Paul actually, he it gets to that point where he just can't take it anymore. He just can't, he cannot wait for Paul, I mean for Silas and Timothy any longer. So it says this, take a look what it says. It says, his, his uh, spirit was provoked within him uh, as he saw the, that the city was full of idols. And then it says this word, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Now this is an important little word here. The words matter so much here. It says, so he did something. Why would we, we use the word so? Same reason we use the word therefore, right? The word so and the word therefore connect you to the previous thought. See, in every other story in Macedonia, and frankly, even before that in Galatia, Paul would get to a city and it wouldn't say, Paul got to the city, so he went to the synagogue to preach the gospel, right? It would say he got to the city and he went to the synagogue to preach the gospel. This was a standard practice for Paul and his strategy. But here it seems to be saying he was not intending to go and do something, but because this thing happened, he went and did it anyway. So he was waiting for Timothy and Silas to arrive, but he was so provoked by the, uh, what he saw in the city, the idols that were binding the people's hearts, that he couldn't wait, so he went to the synagogue and he began to preach the gospel there. Paul is jumping ahead of what he felt would be strategic because he just can't take it anymore, watching the people trapped and enslaved by the idols that are around them. Now look, something else occurs too that's very different from what Paul did previously. Look what it says. It says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. See, this is different from what's been happening in the rest of Macedonia. Paul would go to the synagogue over a period of Sabbaths. He would preach to the Jews and devout Greeks and when they came to understand the gospel, he would then find himself being dragged into the marketplace and there he would then tell what's going on and, and that's how it would happen. This time it says, Paul was so provoked by by the idols in the city that he went to the synagogue and between the Sabbaths, every day he went to the marketplace and whoever was there, it didn't make any difference to him, he would tell them about the gospel. He would preach the gospel to them. 
Now, how do we know he's preaching the gospel? How do we know he's reasoning the gospel? Well, one, because we know Paul, right? So if you've been traveling with him so far, you go, that's what he was doing. But it bothers to tell us that anyways in the scripture. Take a look. Look what it says. It says, while he was in the marketplace talking to whomever happened to be there, some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. See, there it is. There, there it tells us what Paul was doing. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was preaching the gospel. So we know that Paul's response to this provocation from the idols in a city was a gospel action that led him to preach the gospel of Jesus in the city, in the marketplace, in the synagogue, and anywhere else he had a chance to do. Now when he bumps into the Epicureans and the Stoics, uh, we find an interesting conversation take place here that reveals to us uh, how Paul now gets to ultimately speak the gospel to a large part of this city. The Epicureans and Stoics were two groups of philosophers, two of the most popular in the city, that's why they're mentioned, and, and they played an important role. Now, in this city of Athens, because remember I told you, thinking was so highly thought of in Athens, they actually had a court, a group of people, that would sit what we know as, as Mars Hill and you would bring thinkers to this court and then the thinkers would describe their philosophy or their religious thought to the court and the court would determine whether their thinking was worthy of being integrated into Athens as part of the civil or religious or philosophical thinking, right? So that was the greatest honor if the court would say, yes, your thinking is so bright, so smart, so new that we could use it here in Athens and you'd be like, ooh. And so the Epicureans and the Stoics were often uh, among those who were on this court. So they would be in the marketplace listening for little philosophers that were throwing their thoughts around to see who they liked and who they didn't, who they might invite to the court, right? And what they would do is, if you were a philosopher in Athens and you were pretending to be smart, they would call you a babbler. You know why they call you a babbler? We know that name sort of as a, you're, you're, you're throwing a bunch of nonsense, but it actually has very deep meaning. The, the word babbler comes from a Greek root word that means to pick at. Uh, it means to pick at little things. And so the babbler would be the person that had collected enough quotes from enough cool thinkers that they thought they knew what they were talking about, but then they would go in and they would throw these awesome deep thoughts around like they were something, but if you were actually a thinker, you would quickly reveal them to be nonsense nothing but a babbler, someone who pecks at ideas like a hen, pick, 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 but none of them make any sense. So the worst kind of person was the babbler, and we've all been there, have we not? I mean, we've all been on both sides of that coin, have we not? We've stood in a conversation where we knew something, and a person's talking like they do, and you're smiling going, if only they knew how little they knew, then they would not be talking to me, right? <laughs> so the more they talk, the more they make a fool of themselves. But you've also been on the other side of that coin, You've had an awesome little set of knowledge on a particular subject and you've thrown it around in your normal circles and they all think you're super smart and then you bump into an expert in the field and you're throwing it around and that expert starts asking you real questions and you go, well, what I meant to say was, and I really didn't, th and yeah, you, and then you suddenly realize you are a babbler, right? <laughs> so this is what these guys are talking about. Is this guy, Paul, a babbler? He's coming and throwing around these thoughts about this guy, Jesus, and resurrection, and some of those philosophers who are listening in, they say, no, 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 listen to him. He is not a babbler. He's not throwing around ridiculous thoughts just because we do not know what he's talking about in this Jesus person and this resurrection reality. He is actually very reasonably and logically laying out a reality we ought to pay attention to. So some of them say, we think he is a preacher of foreign divinities. And we need to know all the foreign divinities because if they're stronger than our divinities, we need to be their friend too. And so when you bring into Athens a new religious idea that has a foreign divinity that you don't know about, you pay attention to that because if you like them and they're kind and nice, then you can add them to your mix of gods. And if you don't like them, then you appease them so they don't bother you. 
Because the Stoics believed that they came from the gods, they were created from the gods, and so the gods needed to be appeased, and so the Stoics often philosophized among this idea of how we navigate life with the gods. The Epicureans believed all of us came from the Adam, everything, it is all only material and only natural, there is no supernatural. They did believe in the gods though, but they believed the gods also came from the Adam, and so the gods were one uh, expression of the Adam, and we were the other expression the gods left us alone and we left them alone and nobody cared about anyone. And so that was the Epicureans and they loved to debate with one another. So they're looking at Paul and they're going, man, this guy's bringing to the table something fresh, something new we should, we should explore. And what's Paul bringing to the table? He's bringing to the table Jesus and the resurrection. Why? Why is Paul bringing Jesus to the table in Athens? So that he can demonstrate his ability to think among the great philosophers of that time? No, no. In fact, he was intending to wait for Timothy and Silas to arrive. He's bringing the gospel to the table because he is so provoked by the idols in this city. So provoked. And why is he provoked? You see, this is where Paul sees something we are often blinded to. We are often unaware of. See, Paul recognized when he walked the city that these idols in their reality and what they were affecting in the human heart was as dangerous, in fact, no, more dangerous than all of the visible active actions we see of injustice in the world. When we see airplanes flying into buildings and bringing buildings down with 3,000 people in them that we now care about, when we see uh, terrorist groups hurting innocent people and villagers, when we see human trafficking take place, we are provoked by that because we see the damage, we see the slavery, we see the, the destruction, we see the death that comes from these things. But when it comes to the idols, there's a statue standing in Athens, there's a temple on the hill there, there's a bunch of more statues and more temples. The danger is often hidden in the invisible spaces of our hearts. And so we don't see, and Paul walks into Athens, and what he sees is the injustice and the slavery and the bondage and the death that the idols are affecting in the lives of the people. And when he sees that, what is his response? This is so odd to me. Because what is our response typically? We see an idol, it's affecting some damage, maybe it hurts someone we loved, right? And so we jump in front of the idol and we go, stay away from it! And then we graffiti it, bad idol! We bomb it and we throw stuff at it and we Facebook about it, and we get mad at the people's behavior about it, right? And, and you would think that's what Paul would do. Can you imagine Paul running around Athens with a spray bottle, graffitiing every face of every god idol and spraying on the temple? This is not true, run away, right? I mean, that's, that's what, what we do. We find one idol we get all passionate about and then we jump on that idol and we go nuts. And Paul was not uh, passionate by any one idol. He didn't mention any one of them. He said, these idols are creating bondage and slavery and injustice in the hearts and souls of men and women and I will not stand by here and watch. So what I will respond in doing is to bring truth to bear, not on one idol, but on the idols as a whole. And Paul stepped into gospel action out of compassion for the hearts of people. Paul saw the damage the idols were doing, and he responded in love toward the people who were bound by them. This got me thinking a lot about how we play in our environment, especially in the church, right? We have our list of idols too, don't we? Uh, we have Athens right here. They are not statues, they look a little different, but we've got a plethora of idols. I mean, they're all over the place. We're aware of them, we see them. I mean, th think about a few of them here. How about pleasure, there's an idol, materialism, entertainment, security, stimulants, comfort, acceptance, careers. I mean, these are the things we chase after to fulfill us, to, to keep us together in our cultural context that our friends are captivated by. And so we see them and we, uh, we realize they're there, but we are unprovoked by them, unlike Paul. Why are we so unprovoked by the idols that exist around us? Well, I'll tell you, it's not, not like a confusing thing because they don't seem awfully dangerous, do they? I mean, planes flying into buildings, dangerous! Terrorists killing people, dangerous. When big, horrid things happen in our world, dangerous. But when you walk by materialism, you're like, yeah, it's not the best thing in the world. I get that. I mean, I should be careful of it. But I mean, really, buying a new car and a house and another car and another house and more stuff and things and fill your closet. I mean, what is ultimately, what's the danger in that, right? And so we don't see 
the bondage and slavery that these things are affecting every day in the hearts of people, and so we don't find ourselves provoked by them. We are desensitized to a large extent. We've walked around the streets of our Athens for so long that when we see materialism, we hardly recognize it anymore. When we see pleasure, we catch it in glimpses in the bad stuff, but not in the everyday stuff. When we see uh, the comfort and security we find in the stimulants that keep us going, we kind of go, ah, it's life. We live fast, and that's what you need to do, right? We play in our idols among them, and we kind of walk by them, and we point out to our kids, so that's not the best thing, honey. We point at the statue, it's very pretty, but just don't play with it, okay? And we're desensitized by their reality. Or we're totally disconnected from our idols. We're disconnected because we were afraid at one point, right? We saw the idols, we recognized them. For those of us that tend to recognize idols, we see them, we're like, ooh, that's bad. So we gather our children and our families into little spaces and we go, don't go out on the streets of Athens. All those big statues out there, they will eat you and kill you. Okay, and so we throw the TVs out of the house and we get rid of all of the stimulants and we move into little spaces where we can protect and we get them out of the schools and the things and we go, stay home, right? Because the idols in our world are out to get you. And we become so disconnected from the reality of Athens that we are no longer compassionate to anyone. We are just stuck on being safe and being safe actually becomes our idol. (laughs) Who knew? And so, that does it. Here's another one. Here's another reason why we are not provoked by our idols. Because we are entertained by them. Yeah, 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 I know. We're not captivated by them like the other poor people out there. And yes, yes, they're not like deep in our hearts. Like, we're just totally psyched. But, but they are entertaining, are they not? I mean, they are pretty. Uh, Athens was known for its art and beauty. They would just happen to be dedicated to all the gods. And so, uh, th- there is a certain sense in which we play among the same idols. Yes, we're not addicted to television, but boy, you miss that show, and it's a little freaky, isn't it? (laughs) And so we play in these spaces, and we recognize that if we were to be provoked by these spaces, then God might ask us to change some of our habits, and then that's inconvenient, and it gets uncomfortable, and so we just kind of go, it's not so bad. And we look for the extreme versions, right? When someone's taking illegal, illicit drugs, we're like, bad, bad. But the little stuff we drink every day called caffeine and sugar, that's, that's not a big deal, right? <laughs> and you go, yeah, you see this. But here's the reality. These idols that haunt our culture, they are grabbing a hold of the hearts and souls of the people in our culture. And like Paul, we are called to be moved and at the very least moved to compassion. At best, we ought to be provoked by the idols around us. Do you know how dangerous these idols are? Well, allow me to demonstrate. I am sorry that I have to read this to you, honestly, because these are statistics I don't want to read. I'm sorry I know these statistics, but they are necessary statistics for us to recognize that the idols of our culture are creating slavery and death and damage to the people we live with, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our fellow students, our family members, and even, dare I say, in many cases, our own hearts. Listen, pleasure. Pleasure in our cultural context. Did you know that 62% of high school seniors are currently sexually active? 62% of high school seniors. 80% of college students today are sexually active. 80%. That means 20% of college students are not. This is before marriage, despite God saying that creates devastation and damage that you cannot believe. Women in our time today will average in their lifetime four partners and men seven partners in a lifetime. Yeah, just, that'll just be the average, that's what statistics say. Listen to this, 70, I checked these statistics multiple times, they show up on multiple spaces about the same, there's a bit of a range, two, three percent, but here it is, ready? 70% of all married people will cheat on their spouse, 70% in our country. Yes, that doesn't mean 70% of marriages will have infidelity because sometimes it's both cheating on each other and so there might be 50% of marriages that don't have infidelity, but 70% of married people will cheat on their spouse statistically in our current cultural scenario. There is a website called ashleymadison.com among others, this one's the biggest. Uh, There are 12 million people on this website right now and the tagline for the website is life is short, have an affair. 12 million Americans are on that, yeah. $3,000 a second will be spent on porn. 
$3,000 a second in America. 40 million hits a day for the same category in America, in the US, that's not worldwide. 116,000 searches a day in that same category but with the, the word child in front of it. There's a movie that just came out, you guys know about it, because it was one of the idols we got up in arms about and started graffitiing, right? <laughs> That's what we do. We get stuck on one and we're like, <laughs> okay, here it is. Um, it was a movie called Fifty Shades of Grey. Now what was interesting about this movie is this. It was sold as a romantic Valentine's movie that you can go to, and by doing that, they made $90 million the first weekend in the box office. The only movie in February that's ever come out to beat that number was The Passion of the Christ. But this $90 million first weekend on Valentine's weekend sold as a movie that was a romantic movie about exploration and curiosity. They were curious and exploring the fringes of the world of sexuality, right? But the people that actually live in those weird fringes, they came out and said, don't pay attention to this movie, it's much worse than what's actually real. That's what they said about the movie. They said, it's abuse, don't watch it. $90 million p uh, 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 dollars were spent on that. Listen to this, Amazon UK sold more books of Fifty Shades of Grey than all the Harry Potter books combined on Amazon UK. Fifty Grades, uh, Shades of Grey has held the record for being on the USA bestsellers list for 20 weeks in a row. No other book's ever done that before. 20 weeks in a row. They have sold 100 million copies of that book. If you don't think that pleasure as an idol is sinking our culture, you ought to think again. It is captivating the hearts and souls of our young people and moving into their marriages and their lives. We ought to be provoked. How about this one? Materialism. Well, the best way to check materialism is just to go into debt ratios, right? Here it is, American debt, you ready? Out, 3.24 trillion dollars in consumer debt, not including mortgages in the US today. 3.24 trillion dollars in consumer debt, not including mortgages today. We spend so we can have what we don't have to spend. Take a look at this. $880.5 billion in credit card debt alone today in the US. On average per household, it's $15,611 of consumer credit card debt. That's just credit card debt. We are obsessed with materialism and it is sinking our homes and our families and our country. How about stimulants and comfort, okay? Again, stimulants find themselves in multiple categories. In 1820, we consumed 20 pounds of sugar per person per year, in 1820. We were fine, we didn't die. In 1920, we consumed 60 pounds of sugar per year per person. We were okay, but a little more sick. Now we consume 130 pounds of sugar per person per year in our country. We eat 700 more calories per person per day today than we did in the 1950s. And not because we were starving in the 1950s. We were fine in the 1950s. We just eat more because it's comfortable, because it's good and you just can and the portions are larger. So yes, we're in uncomfortable territory, but this is an idol that exists that we want to stimulate ourselves and comfort ourselves with outer things so that we can be fine. Caffeine, sugar, and anything else that will keep us up so we can keep going fast. Listen to this. Listen to this. That has resulted in more than one-third of Americans today considered obese. More than two-thirds total if you add the category of just overweight. Two-thirds of Americans live overweight. The heart disease rates, the di di type 2 diabetes rates are off the charts and, the, and CDC is now calling it an epidemic that is killing more people than any disease of the past. Yeah. Prescription drugs, 52 million people have said statistically that they've used prescription drugs for non-medical reasons as a stimulant, as something to boost them. I read a number of articles saying that Vicodin used to be known as the housewives pick-me-up. Vicodin. Yeah, so this is how it rolls. And I get it, we, we live in this world. Music and entertainment, so in, not music, entertainment, music. I took the top 20 songs from 2014 on the radio, the top 20, and I read through the lyrics. Oh God help me, I wish I hadn't. Listen to this, I looked for a song that was bad, but that I could read appropriately in the service here. Couldn't find one. 
of the top 20, the two that were decent didn't have anything shocking in them, and the other 18 I could not read in this setting with your children here because it would be too inappropriate. That's our music, top 20 songs of 2014. TV, kids watch 4.5 hours a day of television in America today. The average American watches over five hours, one hour online, one hour on a smartphone, three hours on the radio, and if you're 65 and over, statistics say you watch 7.5 hours of television a day. Sorry. See, now are you starting to feel provoked? Because you ought to. Because this is what Paul saw when he walked around the city of Athens. He saw these statues that were beautiful pieces of art, and he realized what they were doing to the hearts of the people in Athens. And his response was not to run around and Facebook about how terrible TV is and how terrible prescription drugs that are misused are and how terrible sugar is and how terrible uh, the world of sexuality is. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. What was his response? His response was to live the gospel out and to preach the gospel to the city regardless of the consequences. His response was to say, what you need to know is Jesus and you need to know what he's done for you because it is only him and his story that will set you free from idols in general. I could free you from one, but you'll just gravitate to another. So if I, if I kill one of the idols, if I stop one of the issues, and we all have passion points, so we're all on one of them, and all of you, when I said one thing, went like, yeah, it's about time you preach that. <laughs> we, are, we are fixated on single issues, and we ought to be aware of the devastation that the whole world of idols is creating in the lives of our friends, coworkers, fellow students, families, neighbors, and everyone else around us. And when we are provoked, in realizing how devastating these things are, then we ought to respond the way the book of Acts is showing us that Jesus' followers respond, in compassion and gospel action, not in hatred and judgment and pointing fingers and writing notes. We ought to walk out into this society and we ought to start living our lives and speaking our words in gospel-honoring manners, and we ought to actually share the gospel. I mean, say it. I'm living it. Say it. Tell them. This is what Paul did. Go to the, go to the marketplace, start preaching the gospel. Well, they're going to get mad. They might, but they need to know because their hearts and souls are being ravished and enslaved and trapped by idols. This is what we are called into we are called into first exploring our life and asking a big question. You ready for it? God, which of the idols that our people are trapped in am I equally entertained by or perhaps even trapped by? Because you cannot be provoked by an idol that rules in your heart. And so the first step to provocation of the idols that damage the souls is to recognize where you might be living in those idols and then do something about it be vulnerable, speak to someone, tell someone, and step into it and start journeying with God on it. It may take a while, but it's okay because it is God wanting you to be free. He's not trying to steal your stuff from you. He's not trying to take from you what means the most to you. He's trying to free you from what hates you. And so we walk into that first. And then once we've walked into that, we remember the words of Jesus, right? Remember Jesus, Matthew chapter five, he said, you are the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its saltiness, well then what good is it to the mission of God? Yeah, Jesus will still love you, don't worry, but what good are you to the mission of God? What good am I? We are the light of the world. What kind of city hides itself under a bowl when it's a light? No, the light shines in the darkness. And so we must be provoked in our culture not to be single issue champions that try to graffiti idols but to be gospel champions that bring truth to the reality of the idols that haunt the hearts of our people. Just start living gospel life, preaching gospel reality, and the idols will eventually crumble. This is our privilege, it is our calling, it is our task, it is our invitation. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Paul's acute awareness of the invisible things that we so often miss as we travel through life. God, another reminder in this beautiful story that we need to be awakened to the realities of the invisible, not just being provoked by planes flying into buildings and tsunamis hitting uh, places and, and terrorists doing terrible things and 
uh, bombs going, in, uh, going off in buildings in our cities. God, yes, we are provoked by those things and human trafficking, but God, allow us to be uh, people that live beyond that provocation and walk into being provoked by the more subtle and invisible enemies that linger and lurk among us. The idols of our culture that captivate our hearts and make us feel things, want things, that become damaging and devastating to our souls. God, such large amounts of people, not caught up in the extreme versions, but caught up in the everyday stuff that is slowly eroding souls and binding hearts. And may we become a people that are not experienced as judgmental and mad and angry, behavior modifiers running around graffitiing idols and telling people how bad they are for wanting to be part of them, may we instead be people that like Paul are known as people that carry a message in the life we live, in the words we speak, a message of you, Jesus. You coming, you living, you dying, and you rising from the dead to set us free from the lives that darkness has captivated. May we become like Paul, people provoked of spirit so that we might be bent toward compassion and moved to gospel action, and become carriers of the gospel. Remind us, God, that when we save a friend from the uncomfortable and awkward conversation of the gospel, we very well may be binding them to the death and destruction of an idol. And when we hold on to our idols, afraid that you will take them from us, that we create space for death even in our own hearts. Help us to be courageous with the gospel, both in our inner life and in our outer life, because death lurks around us and among us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I've shared with you guys over the last few weeks that in 2015 and beyond, we want to become much more familiar with the disciplines of the faith because they are the tools by which we find ourselves interacting and, and, and experiencing God. And we are so poor at using those that we want to practice them here together. So each week we kind of think and pray about a discipline that we can practice together to give you the space to learn and then to go and do it out there when you're by yourself. And so this weekend, we're going to practice a discipline, and it's called the discipline of silence. You go, whoa, whoa, hold. I don't think I'm ready for that one. No, you're ready. Trust me. It'll be okay. We'll walk through it together slowly. Silence is not a space where necessarily it's about being quiet all the time. It's about quieting your soul and your mind to give you the space to listen to what God is doing, what God is saying, what God is revealing to you. You've just heard a message, and the the idea now is we'll sing a quick song and then you'll head out into the busy world you're in and, and you'll remember it was a good message, I hope at least, and you'll kind of go, that was neat, but there's no space for God to deal deeply in your soul. So we're gonna create that space for you now. Uh, in silence, what you do is you just sit quietly and you tell God, God, I'm ready to listen, and then you, you focus on a particular thought or idea that God is stirring in you so that you can listen to what the Spirit is gonna say. This is how we hear from him. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw some words up on the screen to start our time of silence. The piano will play quietly in the background because we're not ready for real silence yet. We need a little bit of sound to keep us comfortable of soul. Someday, someday. Um, but we'll throw a list up, and these are just some of the idols in our culture that I dealt with today, some of them that linger. Here's what I want you to do. In the silence, I want you to ask the Spirit of God to provoke your spirit for the damage that these idols are affecting on those that you know and love, and perhaps even in your own heart. And I want you to start being provoked by what he does. When we're done doing that for about two or three minutes of just thinking on these things and just asking the Spirit to provoke us, not for any one of them, but for all of them as a whole, a single idea, then I'm gonna put a scripture up that is gonna bring some truth to bear on our hearts, and we're gonna think and meditate in silence on that scripture and let God speak to us there, and then we will enter into worship. So take a minute. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for me that in the revealing of what's in us and what's around us, that the Spirit of God would be compassionate but would be firm and bring us to provocation over the death that these idols are affecting. And when, I'm, when I say amen, close your eyes or sit and stare at the words, whatever's best, and just be silent and just listen to the Spirit speak to your heart. God, 
provoke us now, provoke our spirits toward the damage that idols are affecting in our Athens here in America. And allow us not to become angry at those practicing with those idols, but to become angry at the idols themselves and to become compelled to act out in the inner and outer life as gospel carriers to set free those who are around us from the devastation of the bondage and slavery that these idols affect in their lives and even in ours. Speak, Spirit of God, to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. As the Spirit of God begins to provoke in you, I'm gonna call you out of silence for a moment and then I'll send you back into silence. Let us not be afraid of these idols. Let us not run from them. Let us not hide from them, but let us confront them. Let us confront them with light so that the light will overcome the darkness and the idols' powers will die. So the first thing I want you to do now is I'm gonna put a verse up and it's out of the book of Psalms and um, it's out of Psalm 139 and it says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Understand what I'm asking you to do right now. I'm asking you to ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you what you may not yet know or you may be acutely aware of, where the idols linger in your soul because we confront them first there before we ever confront them out here and we let light bring freedom. So ask the Spirit of God to show you where some of the idols, either on the list or ones you are aware of that are not on the list, linger in your soul and have the courage to let him speak to you there. He is not trying to hurt you, he is trying to free you. Be aware, be listening, be silent, and let this verse roll over in your mind as you ask the God of all things to search your soul and heart. Go, be still, seek him out.
The last verse I'm going to put up for you to rest in silence with is uh, out of the book of Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 uh, through 16, and it says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see the good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is our story, free from idols, engaged in culture, in the marketplace, in the synagogues, in the churches, bringing to bear the beauty of the gospel of Jesus by the way we live and the things we share so that people will know freedom and would be able to respond to it as God invites them into that. Would you now sit just for another minute or so and let this verse wash over you and may it wash over you great confidence, this confidence. If you know Jesus, you are an ambassador of Christ, full of the Spirit. You are the light of the world. Do not allow the idols of our day to dim that on mission. Instead, walk freely into the city and say, no, I will dare to preach the gospel. I will dare because I am provoked to bring freedom to those I love. Let's go sit on this for a minute and then we'll be invited into worship.